Well, welcome here to each and every one of you. And if you're a guest or visiting with us, my name is Dave. I'm our lead pastor here. I need to bring this up a little bit. Well, just as, uh, as we were getting started this morning, a young couple named Mixon and Maddie came in and sat next to me, and they had baby Bo with them. And uh, yeah, so I don't know, Mixon, if you want to introduce your son here, but uh, she, oh, he's, he's strapped to mama. <laughs> this is Bo. Well, we're, congratulations, you guys. You know, uh, being distinct, being other than, if I remember correctly, that's like a teenager's worst nightmare. Now, last week I mentioned when I was leading worship up here and they were talking about the all-nighter that was coming up, I remember mentioning that that was my worst nightmare. Uh, It was maybe a bit of an exaggeration, but then as I walked in this morning and I saw the uh, group of young people, the youth of our church, fighting for consciousness, I think it was confirmed that yes, indeed, uh, that is not my kind of thing. But that sense of being distinct from, of being other than those around you, to feel on the outside of the dominant culture, maybe in your school if you're a teenager, yes, that's huge for young people, but I actually don't think they're alone. (laughs) I think that there's a lot of us who feel like I don't want to be seen as weird or other than or distinct from uh, my friends and neighbors. But there is a kind of distinction, a standoutness that our world desperately needs, that the world needs. And that's what we're going to look at today in our message. We've been looking at the Beatitudes over this this summer months about what it means to live in sync with God's kingdom, with the norms of the kingdom as citizens of the kingdom. And we see that more and more as we come in line with God's grace and by his grace alone, uh, citizens of the kingdom come to take on these ways of humility and honesty, of mourning and meekness, of peacemaking and the persecution that often follows, of mercy and righteousness. But Jesus does not change the subject in what he says next. He continues to emphasize what it means to live as citizens of the kingdom, but now he pushes that and he says, this actually, all of this, what I've been describing here as kingdom living, this happens in the public sphere. And so we're continuing with our series, Citizens of the Kingdom, by looking at the two images Jesus gives us next. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And these two images keep us from thinking that we can live the life of citizens of the kingdom apart from deep engagement with what we call, you know, the real world, the actual environments of our cities and our neighborhoods that we inhabit. These images of salt and light say, here is the sight of living in sync with God. So Jesus continues his message, and we pick up here, if you turn to Matthew Chapter 15, verses 13 to 16. We're going to look at this over the next two weeks. You are the salt of the earth, Jesus says. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. 
A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Let's just pray as we begin to open ourselves up to this. Lord, we ask that you speak everything that you want us to hear from this text today. May it come to be only, not only that we understand the text, but that we stand underneath of what you're saying to us and that we live for your glory alone. Amen. Now, we're going to look at the meaning specifically of what it means to be salts, uh, uh, the salt of the earth and, and, and all of that, but we need to step back and notice a few things for a moment first. Initial observations. Observation number one, we need to hold the, the images of salt and light together. Now, John Stott says it well. He says, the effects of salt and light are complementary. The function of salt is largely negative. It prevents decay. The function of light is positive. It illuminates the darkness. For it's one thing to stop the spread of evil. It's another to promote the spread of truth, beauty, and goodness. Jesus calls us to do both. Now, though, although we're going to we're going to focus on the first of these pictures. We, we recognize that they actually belong together. Second observation, taken together, being salt and light will ultimately have the effect, Jesus tells us, in the world around us, that people will see our good deeds and bring glory to God. Like it will be clear that the citizens of the kingdom, as we live as this newly formed Jesus community, humans will not receive glory for what happens as a result. God will receive the glory. Third observation, the yous are plural. And this really matters. In English, we only have one word for you, and it's you. And it could be like you, singular, or it could be you, plural. Like all of you, together, it's the Texan y'all here. Or, and bless that city of Hamilton, which gave us the Arkells and Daniel Lanois and Eugene Levy, they also brought us the phrase, use guys. When I, when I first, Catherine and I first got to Hamilton, we were in conversation with some folks and, and someone just drops it and says, use guys, something, something. We went, whoa, finally the Canadian version of y'all. We have one. We do, and it was awesome. <laughs> so so if, if, it, if this were the Hamilton standard translation of this section, it would begin, use guys are the salt of the earth. Use guys are the light of the world. See, to speak to the crowd, this group, it, it could simply mean, no, I'm talking to each of you personally, just think about what I'm about to say next in individualistic terms. It could mean that. Or it could mean you together are the salt of the earth. You together are the light of the world. And that second one is probably the best understanding. R.T. France, a scholar with a, a fabulous commentary on Matthew, he says, the address is in the second person plural, yous guys, y'all, because it is the corporate impact of the disciple community as an alternate society which is in view here. So you, y'all, together, we together are an alternate community, the salt of the earth. 
Of course, each of us has to play our part, but it's the combined effect. Like many candles to light up a city on a hill, it takes the whole people of God living together in union to be salt and to be light. We together are that community Jesus is addressing. To live in the way of mercy and meekness, of right living and peacemaking, that will be most clearly seen in how we function together as a people. So with those two pictures in mind, you are the salt of the earth. What does that mean? And what about losing the saltiness, becoming tasteless? What does that mean? And then how do we live it out? Let's look at those questions. Number one, salt of the earth. Salt has a variety of uses. And that's actually led to a, a variety of interpretations about what Jesus means here. You know, this summer, uh, we took one of our vacations was to go camping, like we always do at Harold Park, as soon as the kids are done school. So they ended school on Tuesday. And then we were out at the lake on Wednesday. And I don't know if you remember what was going on that week, but we were looking at the forecast going, okay, it's saying it's 49 degrees Celsius at Harold Park with the humidity. And then we were asking questions like, how on earth are we going to sleep outside in that? And our second question was, how on earth are we going to keep our food from going rotten? <laughs> Those were our questions. You know, the idea of how to preserve food has been a question that the whole earth, everyone in the world has had to answer like that up until very recently and still in many parts of the world today. Refrigerators, electricity, that is novel. In the ancient world, the answer to how do we preserve this food, the answer was salt. And that's led many scholars to say <clears throat> that's primarily what, what Jesus has in view here. The, the, the kingdom people, uh, the community of Jesus' followers are to function as a preservative in society. To preserve the world from evil and from decay, that's one of the core meanings of this text. D.A. Carson, he puts it like this. Uh, in, the, in the first metaphor, Jesus likens his disciples to salt. Implicitly, he's saying that apart from his disciples, the world turns even more rotten. Christians have the effect of delaying moral and spiritual putrefaction. If their lives conform to the norms of verses 3 to 12, that's the Beatitudes we just looked at, they cannot help but be an influence for good in society. Second, salt is actually an essential component of like organic life, uh, especially of warm-blooded animals like humans. Um, we usually ingest salt through the thing we sprinkle on our food, but other animals find it through salt licks and different mineral licks. They're actually looking for, uh, the animals in the forest are looking for salt as a part of their regular routine. We need it for our bodies. So this is uh, a familiar use to modern readers to put salt on something is going to make it taste better. It's going to enhance the flavors of it. It's going to be necessary for the life of that thing. And so Michael Williams, he says that Jesus is saying of his disciples, or pardon me, his disciples will provide a God-enhanced kingdom seasoning to the world. So we're even bringing out the goodness that exists in the world. That's a part of what Jesus means by this metaphor, perhaps, some would say. More, the world needs to be actually distinct 
with all her distinctiveness for that to be the case as well. Third thing, salt was used in small quantities at that time as a fertilizer, which some have taken um, to make sense of this saying, the salt of the earth. So in this sense, Jesus might be saying that his followers enhance God's work in the world, like fertilizer, bringing it to life and, and helping things flourish. And some scholars, and I think they're probably right, say, I, I don't know if we need to limit this. Jesus doesn't say, this is exactly what I mean by this. So perhaps all of the uses of salt are in view here. So Wilkins concludes, Jesus indicates with this metaphor that his disciples themselves, you are the salt, are necessary for the welfare of the world. That is, the disciples have experienced a transformation in their lives as they've come into contact with the kingdom of heaven. Now, they are different people of the earth. Different, pardon me, different from the people of this earth. And their presence is necessary as God's means of influencing the world for good. Have you ever thought of yourself and the, the whole church as that? It's, it's, we actually have a function in our world to influence it for the good. We're going to talk about what that looks like in some concrete terms. But first, what about that warning of salt losing its saltiness? Let's look again at that just for a moment. I'm going to read this section. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. We need to note a few things first because some of you have a chemistry background. Um, you're thinking, well, strictly speaking, salt can't lose its saltiness. And if you're thinking that, you'd be absolutely right. If you know anything about chemistry, um, salt is a chemical compound sodium chloride. In its pure form, it could never lose its saltiness. That's just what it is in its nature. But Jesus isn't giving us a chemistry lesson here. He's using an analogy that's common in the ancient world, and so we have to start from the ancient world. And we need to understand there are no refineries in the ancient world. And so what was referred to as salt, if you had a handful of the stuff, at Jesus' time it was a white powder that contained sodium chloride, but it contained a whole lot of other things as well that weren't refined. And so the actual salt compound, NaCl, it's soluble. It means water could wash it out, that whatever the thing it's in, if it gets wet or, or different things could happen, it could become diluted very easily. And this powder could be diluted to the extent that it's no longer salty anymore. So Jesus is saying this powder might look like salt, but it's so diluted, it doesn't have the effect of preserving food or enhancing flavor. It's really just road dust. And so Jesus is warning, it's, it, it's about not becoming useless, like road dust that can't do anything. You need to maintain what? Your distinguishing features as God's people. Here's the second thing that I found really interesting. Um, most weeks when I'm preparing for a sermon, I try to read the text in the original Greek language, what it was written in. And as I was taking my time to read through it this week, because it slows me down and it helps me kind of notice different things, uh, one of the words just jumped out and like hit me between the eyes. So that, that one that we translate loses its saltiness, it's the word moreno. And uh, the reason it hit me between the eyes, it's, it's, it's because that's where we get the word moron from. Um, 
And a few of the commentators point that out. So it could be, tr- it could be translated tasteless or become tasteless or become foolish, become moronic. And we have to know that in, in Hebrew thought, Jesus being a Jewish person is always working from his Hebrew thought. Uh, foolishness isn't simply ignorance. It's not like, well, you just don't know something. That's what makes you a fool. No, a fool is a moral category. It's a sense of arrogance. I don't need, I don't need any more information. I've got this nailed down and walking through the world with this, um, this moral sense that I've actually just got everything together. In fact, the word sophomore is, is kind of a funny play on words. Sophos means wise. Moros means fool. A sophomore, a second year in university is a person who's a wise fool. They think they've got it all together. They've got this attitude of arrogance. And that's when I flunked out of university for the first time. Second year. Wise fool, sophomore. They let me back in, by the way, and I did okay in the end of the day. So R.T. France says, the apparently inappropriate verb, moronic, it points to the metaphorical role of salt here to symbolize the wholesome flavor of wisdom which disciples are to contribute. Did you catch that? This captures how Jesus' disciples are to do our work of preserving and enhancing the goodness in the world. It's by bringing God's wisdom to bear in the real public spaces that we inhabit. So here's the point. God's people are called to display the wisdom of God, a wisdom that's distinct from the world around us and what the world around us calls wisdom by living out the beautiful way of the Beatitudes that we just saw. And it points forward, Jesus in his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount shows us what to live with wisdom looks like. And boy, oh boy, it is very distinct from the rest of the world. And this only comes as we have this trusting obedience to actually walk with Jesus in the Jesus way that we begin to to live out the wisdom that God is talking of here. So it means not acting in foolishness. Not, but acting in good taste, rather, in line with the ways of the kingdom, the, the very things we've been looking at in the Beatitude, again. And the third thing is, to become tasteless is to, and I've said this already, to lose our distinctiveness from the rest of the world. Now, although the Sermon in the Mount, on the Mount applies to all Christians now, it was specifically preached to a group of Jewish people. The Israelites, uh, here's how N.T. Wright puts it. God had called Israel to be the salt of the earth, but Israel was behaving like everyone else with its power politics, its factional squabbles, its military revolutions. How could God keep the world from going bad, the main function of salt in the ancient world, if Israel, his chosen salt, had lost its distinctive taste? Indeed, the same is true for followers of Jesus today. We can't keep the world from going bad around us if we are not faithful to the way of Jesus in every sphere of life, enacting the things that he has uh, called us to be and to be about. So what's that distinctiveness and how do we live it today? Again, we spent the last nine weeks looking at the Beatitudes about coming in conformity with the kingdom, with meekness and mercy, purity of heart, and ways that make peace in the world. And it's what the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is all about. It's precisely our distinctiveness from the world in important ways that Jesus outlines that 
enable us to truly serve the world. Uh, to borrow a phrase from Tim Keller, he says, the church is to be distinct from the world for the sake of the world. So what does that look like? Um, first, what does it look like to be salt in our world? And second, how do we heed the warning to not become tasteless or foolish or useless? Here's just two ways that I think really touch down in our moment. You've heard of the midlife crisis. I happen to be 41 years old. They tell me that's midlife. When we come to realize that, yes, we are getting older, and I really am, I get sore from sitting the wrong way. That seems wrong to me, but it happens. And there's this realization that I'm actually probably closer to the tomb than I, want, than I am to the womb. And when you realize that, a drive begins to function in people's hearts and minds. Uh, folks I know and have had conversations with, you know, sometimes it, 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 the, the response to that is to buy a sports car, something fast, something that makes you feel young and alive or something like that. Or people will pursue a younger mate, a way maybe to quote unquote prove that they've still got it or something like that. Uh, but as I talk with Christian people, at this stage of life, many of them too are experiencing something of a crisis. But it often takes a quite different slant than simply buying a sports car or having a mistress or something like that. There's this nagging sense. I sure hope it would be different than having a mistress, by the way. I, just to be clear on that point, that's, that's, that would be totally outside of the realm of, of, of distinctive Christian living, by the way. So just in case you heard that wrong, it's different than that. There's a nagging sense of... Did I do anything really with my life? Folks my age that have been following Jesus want to be able to point at something and say, look, there, I, I did something. I, I made something of myself. I was a somebody. I made a difference in the world. I was significant. And so there's this angst about our significance um, that's often pitted against the ordinary. It's often about comparison, too about not wanting to be quote-unquote average, but to be spectacular, to be special in some way. Personal achievements, being able to point back and say, look, I did that. That's what often drives, I submit to you, where my peers, where I am most tempted to give in to this midlife crisis thing. Here's where I'm going with this, two things. Number one, where and how do we as God's people most influence the world? I submit to you, it's not by seeing, being seen as spectacular by others or non-average, but by being transformed and then living that transformed, your transformed person out in the very ordinary, concrete, day-to-day -day of life. It's rubbing shoulders with your coworkers and neighbors and doing so precisely as the salt of the earth that's what represents Jesus to others. It's living the way that pictures the beautiful in-breaking in -breaking kingdom of God right in the middle of diaper changes and of ordinary hospitality like dropping off some cookies for your neighbors and saying, welcome to the neighborhood. We're glad you're here. It's raising a family that lives with Jesus and love at the center. It's faithfulness to Jesus, to the kingdom way, and working that out in your work setting with just deep integrity, 
Integrity of heart and life. Your coworkers notice it, by the way. It's by doing your work in a way that it's aimed at serving others, not climbing the ladder, not earning more, not having a larger profile, but just actually to serve. So to you who are struggling with being ordinary, to you who feel like you've got this drive to be spectacular, like why didn't I do something with my life? I want to say to you, you don't need to be spectacular. What really changes the world is when people who have been transformed by the love of Jesus put themselves into the place uh, that they work and live as salt. Because in one sense, there is nothing ordinary about living with the living God at the center of your life, with his life pulsating through you. Mother Teresa, I think, said it really well. There are no great acts, only ordinary acts done with great love. That's what I'm getting at here. Second thing, you'll notice I've just been speaking in very individualistic terms. You and your midlife crisis, if that happens to be you, someone like me in my age group. But we need to go back and remember, Jesus is approaching the community and speaking to the community as a community. This isn't at one level about you and your kind of individualism. It's not about you and your crisis. So number two, this is about our combined impact in the world. It's about how we, through our life together as a community, join efforts to be the salt of our world. Now, if you look at any of the great movements that have changed the world, ways that Christians have salted the world, you think of the abolition of slavery, and the name William Wilberforce comes to mind. He did not do that on his own, and he would never tell you he did. He did so as a part of a community out of which he was nurtured. Yes, he might have been the guy on the front lines in Parliament in Britain, but he was backed by a whole community of people. It's a community that changes the world. Consider, if you contribute financially to Summit, You are giving to a ministry in Mexico that we partner with called El Refugio. It means the refuge. It's a ministry that works alongside of the Mexican officials to rescue girls who are being abused or who are being trafficked into the sex trade. And it provides them with a home, with a family to which they belong, a place they can experience the love of Christ, where they're exposed to life as the Christian community. That's being the salt of the earth. And that couldn't happen apart from the combined work of giving and praying and doing life together as a church. It's in how we partner together, not one person but many, to provide youth ministry opportunities, like we've seen this overnight this last night with Colton and the youth leaders. And he would never say that this is his work. This is the combined work of a group of people, the church, serving together so that young people have a place where they can experience the love of God, they can have a community that supports them through this difficult time of development. So it's together in what might seem like really insignificant little ways, actually that we begin to salt the earth and bring goodness into the world. And here's the second last thing we need to see. Number two, we live the way of God's wisdom together in this world. I think the warning of Jesus not to lose our distinctive taste, not to become foolish, I think it's actually a real warning. God's people must live with God's wisdom. Paul says it like this in Ephesians 5, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. 
And then he'll go on to talk about getting on and doing it. A professor of church history that I know, he recently shared a message from a friend. I don't know who the original author is to give credit. But the message was really important, I think, and connects with our moment. Remembering that losing saltiness connotes foolishness in the world. Living foolishly. Which includes not valuing truthfulness. So to quote The quote, pardon me, is in reference to a whole host of controversial topics that this writer is tackling. And I'm not going to deal with any of those in particular, but I think this actually is applicable across the board for any of the controversial issues that you and I might run across now and into the future. So I quote, fellow Christians, this is important. When you speak out on a controversial issue, imagine God quizzing you about it. He knows the issue better than you do, And he knows your motives. So just take a minute. Think about a controversial issue you might speak out about. Imagine God sitting you down and quizzing you about it. Like God quizzed Job. Go read the end of Job. See how that went for him. Imagine God quizzing you. So questions that you might ask yourself are this then. Like, are you being wise and helpful? God cares. Have you made the most careful fair-minded effort to find out what's really true, no matter how complicated? Or did you take on a controversial opinion just because you want to feel like a rebel? Good question. Are you promoting selfishness rather than loving your neighbor? If you're mistaken, do you want to know? Do you even know what you're talking about? I mean, he's getting a bit cheeky sounding now. I, I, I recognize, but it's still a good question if we're talking about not being fools. Do you even know what you're talking about? Do you have enough information to have an informed opinion and answer questions from real experts? If not, he says, don't run your mouth. I know it sounds blunt, but it certainly is biblical. James writes, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. James 1.19, we do well to reflect deeply on this and live it out. The writer continues, the Bible says we have a moral duty to seek wisdom, and we do. And that deliberately being foolish is a sin. The whole book of Proverbs is about this. So next, he asks, the Bible says it's wrong to bear false witness, to accuse people of wrongdoing without good evidence and good reason for being involved. Gossip, he says, is singled out as a sin, even if the content is not false. That's important, isn't it? Even if the content isn't false, speaking slander, speaking gossip words is called a sin in the the scriptures. And then last, the Bible does not say that you have the right to your own opinion if that means a right to believe things that aren't true. There are plenty of warnings about this. 1 Samuel 2.3, for instance, let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Now, I recognize there was a lot in those those few lines there. But to take up our role as the salt of the earth, to not become foolish or tasteless, requires Christian people to be deeply committed to careful, thoughtful truth-speaking, to be slow to speak, and to turn away from arrogance. We maintain our distinctiveness, our tastiness in the world, so that when people see how we interact with others around us, they take notice and go, wow, that was really helpful. 
Glory be to the God that they serve. So the question is, is that what people say when they see how you and I interact around complex issues? Maybe complex issues online, for example. Wow, the wisdom and beauty of God on display. Is that what people are saying and thinking? We need to remember if we are Christ followers, that our witness to the truth of the gospel is going to be linked to all the other ways that we behave in the public sphere as the Jesus community. So our witness is completely at stake on issues of truthfulness and wisdom. Being the salt of the earth then means being wise and doing it together as our life. And that wisdom is most perfectly displayed in the life and teaching of Jesus. Our distinctiveness and wisdom arise to the extent that we live in deep connection with Jesus and in radical, joyful obedience to the things he teaches, to the things he actually says, above every other thing that's vying for our allegiance or attention. As we talked about that this week, um, Colton, Pastor Colton said, it really begs the question, is Jesus your first and best? Is allegiance to him your primary allegiance? Or is it allegiance to maybe a political ideology? Is that what has your pri the primary allegiance and, and, and draw on your heart? Or is it something else? Is it Jesus himself and what he teaches? Is that what you're centering your life on? That's what Colton and I were talking about. And then Rue said something similar. She said, being with Jesus is what makes you salty. It's being in connection with the living God that creates in us the sort of wisdom that gets on display in the world. The wisdom of God, we find, is actually and most perfectly expressed, as Paul says, in Jesus, and particularly in what looks like his foolishness on the cross. 1 Corinthians 1.24 says, To those whom God called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And he'll go on to speak about how foolish the cross looks to the rest of the world. And yet it's there that the sight of God's wisdom is most perfectly displayed. To illustrate this, I just want to end with a story. Uh, this is one that Tim Keller shared with the British Parliament at a prayer breakfast he was speaking at a number of years ago. And so I'm just summarizing what he said there. He said, in Pennsylvania, October of 2006, a gunman went into an Amish schoolhouse and took a group of school children hostage. In the end, he killed five girls, ages seven to 13, and then he took his own life. Within hours, the Amish community came around the parents of the shooter. He, they lived in that same community. They lived in that town. And around the shooter's wife and children, and they expressed their sympathy for them. And they said, we want to be with you in the hard times that follow. At the gunman's funeral, half of the people there were from that Amish community that had been so deeply affected. And then one of the spokesperson, they shared how all of the families affected by that had forgiven the shooter. In America, Keller writes, there was a lot of discussion in the days to follow. There was a shock at how easily and quickly these people were able to forgive and offer uh, healing and hope to this family. And a lot of people wrote, and it was common sentiment to say, look, this is what Americans are capable of. This is us at our best. However, about two to three years later, a group of sociologists wrote a book called Amish Grace. 
And in that book, they wrote that in Western society, we should not think we are capable of producing that kind of people anymore. They go on to argue this, forgiveness is an act of self-renunciation. Forgiveness is an act of self-sacrifice for the good of others. It's to say, I, I could pay you back, but I choose not to. But, say the sociologists, our culture is inc increasingly consumeristic. It's individualistic, and it teaches self-actualization. It teaches self-assertion, and it teaches never do self-renunciation. No, they go on to say, our culture is not capable of producing people like that. We will become more and more incapable of creating people who can forgive, who can share power, who can make sacrifices. And then the writers say, the Amish culture is based on Christianity. And here's what the Amish believe. Jesus had all the glory. Jesus had all the power. He had every right to be angry at us from turning, for turning away from him. But he gave and he gave and he gave. He gave up his glory and he became a human being. He gave himself up on the cross. And as he was dying, he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't even know what they're doing. On the basis of that forgiveness that Christians receive, they now hear, and we now hear Jesus say, now take up your cross and do the same. Live that same cross-shaped way for God and for neighbor, but not for yourself. So you see at the heart, at the center of God's work and wisdom, it comes at the end of Matthew's gospel where Jesus lays down his life for the sake of others. He puts us above himself. And when we take in that life, it calls us, it forms us, it shapes our hearts to live the same kind of way. That's the source and reason for our distinctiveness. What defines our saltiness? Living in faithfulness to Jesus, deeply connected to him through his grace, together as a community. Where does this happen? It happens in the everyday and the ordinary spaces that we inhabit. So may it be that Jesus, in his wisdom and grace, enables us together to truly live as distinct from the world for the sake of the world and to his glory. Amen. I call the worship team to come and let's just pray as they do. Jesus, I thank you for your wisdom in calling us together to be the salt of the earth. It's incredible that you entrust such a task to us, but we know that we don't do it alone. We do it only by your grace, your empowerment, your indwelling. So we ask God that for your glory, you would make us a people who are distinct from the world for the sake of it and to your glory. Amen.